What I wanted to share with you this morning comes from what I've learned. Uh, I've been traveling overseas for, for eight years now, working with Slavic Gospel Association. That has allowed me to see churches where there are people that I know who have been martyred for their faith. Uh, churches that gather together not as a, a name or a denomination, but those who have given their life in all its measure over to following their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it mean uh, to be among the body of believers, not just followers of Jesus, not just asking what would Jesus do, not just showing up at church on Sunday, but truly living a life that's transformed by the grace of God and heralding in the truth that Jesus Christ is God and Savior, that there is salvation in no one else. Well, last week, I was blessed uh, to meet Frank, Frank Drown. Frank Drown led the, the uh, search party that went out to see if there was anyone alive with Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, and the rest of the men who were reaching out to the Aka Indians. Frank was a man who uh, had developed a great friendship with Nate Saint. He was 90 years old and walked very slowly up to the pulpit to share his heart. <coughs> and, and this is what he said. He said that he was so fearful, along with the other missionaries, because the Aka Indians were scheduled to be basically exterminated. The Aka Indians had been spearing people, and due to the spearing people and the oil companies that were coming to the jungle, the goal was you had to wipe out the Indians so that they did not get in the way of the progress of the advancement of the oil in the jungle. And they realized what a tragedy it would be that those, those Indians would lose their life and never hear the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is a verse that was quoted over and over and over by Frank, and it was this. For all of you guys in Awana, it's Acts 4.12. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are to be saved. And so Frank committed himself realizing that if it wasn't about the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't about him giving his life to proclaim this message, then all was lost and all had no value. And he gave himself to this. And I will tell you right now, he's 90 years old and he travels four times a year up above the Arctic Circle to develop a, an over, um, a radio broadcast for Aka, uh, not for the Akas, the Inuit Indians uh, that are up there in that area because he knows they need to hear the gospel. He saw his family, his friends, die for their faith. And at 90 years of age, he couldn't imagine doing anything else other than living for their faith. Yet here's the tragedy. 78% of our country claims a Christian faith. 8% believe in salvation by grace, a real heaven and hell. And only 25% of that 8% actually do something with their faith. What that means is about 2% of our country actually lives their faith. The other 98% either ignore religion as some crutch for the weak or claim a faith they know nothing about. What category do the faithful at Bear Valley Church fall into? Would they find themselves hungry for the lost? Would they practice a faith or would they be satisfied just coming on Sunday morning? This was the challenge that I believe that Jesus faced when he first began his ministry. And if we turn to Mark chapter 2, I think there are some pearls that we can draw out of there, some truths that we can draw out of there that should challenge our hearts, should challenge our hearts. 
And I would hope that each of us would have hearts much like Frank, much like him who gave his life for service of the Lord. And I'm glad you teenagers are here because in our country today, you more than anyone else need to get the truth out. Don't hide for your faith, but live it. doesn't matter how old you are. Be sure you're living it. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even that there were, I'm sorry, gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray before we go further. Father, I pray that you would open this word to our hearts, that you would help us to understand your leading. And Lord, may you be glorified in this time. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Mark opens up in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, and it sets the tone for the Gospel. For Jesus had come with this singular message, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the reason Jesus came. He called people to repentance and he called people to believe that they would turn away from the way that they have been living their lives and turn unto him who is the Savior and Lord and God himself. Central to that was listening to the message that was proclaimed by Jesus. Yet everyone had their own interpretation. This rabbi from Nazareth had come in, and and, and you've heard it said throughout Scripture, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He was a carpenter's son, a simple man who had come, but he had astounding teaching as he taught with authority. But he was doing miraculous things. He was casting out demons. He was healing people. He was changing their lives. And here, this amazing rabbi was coming back to Capernaum, as we see in verse 1. And it was reported that he was at home, and it's likely it was the home of of Peter. Now, we've got some pretty nice homes here in Bear Valley, but let's talk about Peter's home. Peter's home was likely this mud-walled, single-room dwelling where they were sleeping on the floor. They didn't have uh, central air or anything. They had just a simple old dusty building, and and it's likely that the roof was covered with a type of pottery or tile with dirt on top of that and grass on top of that. And then there was likely a stairway, and sometimes they'd put a goat up on the roof to mow the the roof and uh, keep keep the grass down. And what had happened is everyone had heard about this amazing rabbi, and they had gathered around, and they had gathered around to hear his teaching. Well, there was a curiosity of the Pharisees And they had come from all over, and they had heard stories and maybe even seen Jesus preach in the synagogues around Galilee. And there they gathered in, sitting in the seats of honor. And then there were others that were the ones who were part of the crowd following Christ that are gathered around. And these people came, these four people came, carrying their paralytic friend, and they wanted to get to Jesus. But they had to penetrate two, two layers of defense. To get through to the feet of Jesus, they had to get through all the followers. 
They had looked around. In fact, the door, it says, was even packed. There was no room, not even at the door. This house is full of this rabbi, and they know the rabbi is there, and they've got to bring their friend to him. The religious elite, those who are the proclaimed experts in understanding the religious law, they were gathered around in the middle, and they were listening. All these people gathered around Jesus, and these four men hungering to get to Jesus, to bring their friend to Jesus, and they couldn't get by the followers of Jesus. And they tried, and they hatched a plan, and they went up the back stairway onto the roof and began tearing away the dirt. It says that they came with a paralytic carried by the four men, verse 4, chapter 2. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. You see what was happening was they were gathering together. And and think about this for a moment. Do you think digging through a dirt, pottery-covered roof was a simple, quick task? Of course not. So you have the Pharisees and dirt clods are following, falling down on them. And you have the group around the Pharisees and they're thinking, you're messing with our worship time. And the dirt's coming down and, and they're gathering around to see what Jesus is going to do and they're pulling this roof back. What would you think? You're gathered in your ABFs. You're gathered in worship. There's people hungering for Jesus. Would you get up and help them move the tile out of the way and help them so the paralytic could come down and become face-to-face with their Savior? Or would you be disgusted that people are interrupting your moment? So gathered around are all these people that are trying to figure out what these people are doing, lower them down, and these four men don't care. And with ropes strapped around their shoulder, they're lowering their friend down to Jesus. And these are the words of Jesus, who was the teacher at the time. Surely if he was teaching, he would have been irritated by these men. They, dis- they disturbed his teaching. It was, a, it was a moment in which it was all taken away. The people are pressed in. But this is what Jesus said. And he said, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. I want you to key on the word saw. It was that Jesus saw their determination and their faith to bring this man before him. And the contrast should be not missed. If you look back at verse 41 in chapter 1, when he was cleansing the the leper, Jesus moved with pity, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. The word clean in the Greek gives the idea of cleaning the outside of the glass, much different than an act of faith. Jesus there with with the... with the leper, was showing his greatness. He was showing his divinity. But here, showing the same, he sees the faith of the paralytic and the friends. And in contrast to responding that he cleaned the outside and cleaned him of the disease, he talks about the inside, the heart, because the greater issue was not making them feel good. The greater issue was to see their life transformed by the gospel. And something that I didn't share in the previous service that I want to share with you now, I visited an orphanage above the Arctic Circle in Mormonsk, and a young girl there took me to her room to show her the teddy bears, much like the ledge right here, that were lined all around her room. There were 15 teddy bears that were provided to her by people who had come to visit. Not one of those people shared the gospel with her. Let me tell you, if an orphan child 
is comforted and warmed with a new pair of shoes and a, and a set of clothes and teddy bears from all the people who love them, and you never share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, you have done the worst thing you could possibly do. For the greatest need that that orphan child had was to be, to be transformed by her father or his father in heaven. And God has chosen you as the vessel to communicate that. But we have to ask ourselves, are we part of that crowd so fixed on worship that we're missing the people that want to be brought to Jesus? Are we so much like the Pharisees sitting around in the middle uh, deliberating about the work of God that we are not bringing people to the feet of God? Well, let's read on. Now, some of them scribes were sitting there questioning Dialogizomai is the Greek word here. It means he was, they were having a dialogue. Have you guys ever done that? Had a discussion with yourself? You see things going on, and so you have this massive debate. Is it true? Is it not true? Could it be? What is, what's going on? And you have this warfare. And so the, the scribes are sitting. Can you imagine sitting with all the dirt coming down on your head and the chaos and the, and the, para, the paralytic? Why were they sitting? Seats of honor. Rather than seeing the need to help the one in need, they stayed fixed in their seats of honor. And the Pharisees began to have a debate within them. And he said he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to him, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What an amazing scene that it was that Jesus turns to the paralytic, who in their minds, their culture, would have seen him cursed by God, that he turns and says, rise, and they must have known that this could only be of God. For him to heal a person, to ask for forgiveness. But he is a man. He's just a man. Who does he think he is? And the Pharisees began this dialogue saying, Here is one who says that he can forgive sins. And we know that only God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 God is one. And Jeremiah 33.8 speaks of how God says, I will forgive. And they know from the prophets and from the past that there is only one God and only God can forgive. And who is this person to heal the paralytic? And right before them was God. And they couldn't get over the dialogue in their own mind. They can't reason their way to salvation. You aren't going to be able to convince. There weren't enough signs. It is the work of God. God taking a heart of stone and and taking it out and installing a heart of flesh. And the Pharisees, who were the ones who knew the Scripture the best, were the ones to be most pitied. And then the crowd goes on. Verse 12, He rose and immediately picked up His bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this much like the stands at a football game erupt as they saw the players on the field do an incredible play. We're amazed. How could someone make a catch like that? How could someone do such a thing? The crowd was amazed, and the word went out. You look back into verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 1. 
And you look at verse 28. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Look at verse 45. They were, he, he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. The news went out. What needed to go out was the good news of Jesus Christ. What went out is what would Jesus do? What went out was a question of what this rabbi was doing. A therapeutic generation was among them, and they wanted to know what the rabbi was going to do for them. They wanted to know about the casting out of the demons. They wanted to know how to feel better. They wanted to know about hope. But it wasn't about Jesus coming into their life. It was about their life being transformed and surrendered to Jesus. It was more than just adding a little bit of flavor of Jesus to their life. Jesus says, I want you to repent. I want you to be transformed. I want you to cast off the old self and bring in the new self. And so Jesus, here in this section, is transforming a life by faith. And the paralytics were the ones who wanted to bring bring their friend to Jesus. And the others were just watching. And we see that we're confronted with our life here today in American churches. There's a mass number of people who claim to be Christians or Christ followers. There are a mass number of, a smaller number of people who are those who claim to know religious tradition the best. It's actually mostly that man related, man developed tradition. And then there are a few that are saying, I have to get my friend to Jesus. What what will God see when he comes to Bear Valley Church? Will he see a group of believers who are committed to getting their friends before Jesus? Will you kids in high school? I mean, will you be so committed that you will want to tell every friend about your faith? Or will you hide it under your jacket and be a secret agent Christian? Will you parents be so afraid that you're going to lose your job that you won't tell someone? that they're going to hell and the only hope they have is in Jesus Christ? Your relatives, your family? Or will you see God as a helper God? As someone who's just going to take care of your problems and then when things are going well, you seem to think of them as someone you don't need? Or will you be a Pharisee who rests in religious tradition and is happy that you are okay but not spend your life bringing your friends before Jesus. So we see this transformation that is occurring and the faithfulness is a friends. And then it goes on in verse 13. He went out beside the sea, and I'm sorry, in your outlines, the first section, breaking through, overthinking and getting into the game. The second one in your outline, breaking through selfish desire and getting into the game. For if there was anyone that was filled with selfish desire, it was Levi. He was a tax farmer. You see, tax farming is something that the the, the Russians, I'm sorry, the Romans developed. And the Russians kind of played that game too. Uh, But tax farming with the Romans was something they did to raise revenue for the government, and they preyed along the people. If you wanted to be a tax collector, you had to bid for it. It was something you purchased 
There were levels. There were chief publicans, of which it looks like Zacchaeus in Jericho was one of the chief publicans. And there were three locations where they collected revenue along the trade routes, and it was in Jericho, Caesarea, and here in Capernaum. And so here, Levi is collecting taxes. He's a man of probably good means and wealth. He's got a great career, but he's hated by his fellow countrymen. You see that he's sitting here at the tax booth. He, went, he being Jesus, went out in verse 13 beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He wasn't one of those who was following the others and following Jesus. He wasn't one of those who was questioning the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees, if they saw Levi, would have actually gone to the other side of the street and walked by him. He was sitting there in his tax booth, and Jesus said these words, follow me. In the Greek, the word is akolotheo, which is where the word acolyte comes from. See, I grew up in an Episcopal church, and I was an acolyte, so I put on the little white robe, and I carried the cross in the procession up in church. And what it meant, it, was a like, it means little follower. And so what Jesus was doing is he was turning to Matthew or Levi or Matthew and seeing the one who was the least of the least, hated the sinful one that had no redeeming value, and he said, take upon yourself my mantle. I want you to speak as I speak. I want you to walk as I walk. I want you to live as I live. To be an acolyte is to be an understudy, to take on all the mannerisms of the one you follow. See, it's again, it's more than just accepting Jesus. It's not like we take Jesus into our life and he somehow gets our household in order. It is that we no longer live for ourselves, but we're over here as a new creation. We take on the mantle of the one that we follow. Because if you see what Matthew did here, Matthew or Levi rose and followed him. In an instant, Matthew was no, or Levi was no longer Levi the tax collector. He was Matthew the follower of Jesus Christ. He left his career behind. He left the money. He left his ability to put food on the table. He left his friends. He left his reputation. He left everything so that he could follow Jesus. His people would have thought he was crazy. The Pharisees would have thought Jesus was crazy because he's a sinner. And Matthew said, I will respond. By God's grace, he opens up Matthew's heart. And what happens in verse 15? As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here's the first thing that Matthew did. I say Matthew, but it's Matthew and Levi. This is the first thing he did. He came to faith, and he went to his friends and said, Here is Jesus who transformed my life. He was so sold out for the life that he had gathered among himself, he invited him to fellowship under Mediterranean customs to, to bring someone into table fellowship was to call them family. When I came here, it feels like family with all of you. And so in that custom, he was bringing them in to have fellowship with Jesus And so he was bringing those that would have been distant and destitute. He was bringing those who would have been embarrassment to those who claimed to follow Jesus, 
those who claim to be the knowers of the religious tradition, but he was reaching out. And so what do we have? We have the paralytics who had to push through the crowd of the supposed followers of Jesus. He had to push through the crowds of the purveyors of religious tradition and come to the feet of Jesus, bringing those along. And Matthew, he, who came to faith, what did he do? He went to the sinners and the wretched people of the world, and he brought them to the feet of Jesus. He didn't worry about what anyone said, but he knew the priority was to come. And then finally, and the third thing in your outline, breaking through man-crafted traditions and getting into the game. Jesus shows us the real priority. Again, starting in verse 15, as he reclined at the table in this house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to him, <coughs> excuse me, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus looked upon the Pharisees and they were steeped in their oral tradition for the Pharisees were known as separatists. Those were the ones that were separated unto God and they had three things about them. They followed the traditions of the Pharisees and separated themselves off and strived for holiness. Secondly, the Pharisees were expositors of the text. They were the one that explained the word of God. And here's the third part. Rabbinic tradition, the tradition of all the teachers over the years were gathered together. Like you sinned on Sunday, or I'm sorry, on the Sabbath if you ladies pull a gray hair out. You won't find that in Scripture. That was an oral tradition. So the Pharisees are looking upon Jesus, and in the rabbinic code it would say to have table fellowship with a foreigner or an outsider was to bring uncleanliness upon you. And so they looked upon Jesus as an action and said, it doesn't line up with our man-centered tradition. What you're doing cannot be right. And Jesus, God himself, said, look, I didn't come to affirm the righteous. I came to save sinners. So we see the same thing that we see with Zacchaeus in Luke 19.10 where Jesus proclaimed, I came to seek and save the lost. And where was Zacchaeus? Little Zacchaeus wanted to get to Jesus and he couldn't because the crowd of followers were blocking the way. And Zacchaeus, even though he was a chief tax collector, raised up his robe and he ran, which would have been to his shame. And he climbed a tree like a child, which would have been to his shame. And he looked upon the avenue and he's waving out to Jesus. And Jesus says, come on down, Zacchaeus. And he goes and he has dinner with Zacchaeus with sinners. And we see time and time again, whether it's the paralytic and his friends, whether it is Matthew in his response inviting his friends to dinner, whether it's Jesus himself seeking the sinners and the tax collectors, this one truth is here. If he has saved you, he has saved you for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not asking you to circle around together as a group of followers. Are you blocking people from the gospel by your actions, by how, you, how people perceive you? Or are you bringing people to the feet of Jesus? Are you just following Jesus in hope that he puts your house in order? 
and says the things that you want to hear? Or do you understand that he gave his life on the cross for your sins? And he alone is the only means of salvation, and it costs you your very life. And because of that, you are sold out to give your life for the sake of the gospel. When Frank drowned, saw his friends with spears still out of their bodies. He committed himself to where at 90 years of age, he is still serving God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Bear Valley must be a body of believers who are sold out for the gospel and not just people who are satisfied sitting in the pews. Do not be satisfied in your relationship with God to just attend church. Do not so conduct your life that, you look, that others would look upon you and say, you are in my way, I want to find Christ, and certainly you're not one of those who truly follows him. Do not be steeped so heavily in religious tradition man-centered tradition, that you don't know the difference between what's written in Scripture and what are the denominational traditions that we have here. Be set aside for the work of God. The body of believers needs to understand here, missions is not a department of the church. It is the calling of the church. The responsibility you have here is to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And God has chosen chosen to do it through you. Do not leave the responsibility up to a couple people who feel like they've got the gift of evangelism. Each of you needs to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody you see, especially you guys on campus in the high school. We have got to reach this younger generation. There is no higher priority than to see you guys as faithful, fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. It's got to happen. My urgency in giving you this message is this. When we travel through Europe and these other countries, People who are dying for their faith would say, well, no kidding, Eric. You go to Europe, and they have forgotten their faith. You travel around America, we have forgotten what it means to know who God is. It's It's not enough for you guys to just to be followers. It's not enough for you guys just to know the scriptures. You have to be transformed by the gospel and be ready to give this message to the nations. It starts with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your gift, your gracious gift of love that you've given us through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For he alone is worthy of praise. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to wander in darkness, but you shone the light of the gospel into our hearts. Father, I pray that you would raise up from amidst of this congregation here more who are ready to take your gospel to the ends of the earth, but even that, uh, startle their hearts that they may be witnesses wherever you place them, that they may follow you with great passion. Father, I thank you and especially lift up this younger generation before you that they would be impacted by the gospel. Father, work in their lives. We thank you and praise you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.